He looked at Psalm 1 together and considered this path to happiness. And we said that Psalm 1 is an introduction into the entire book of Psalms. But that's true, but in some sense, Psalm 1 doesn't stand alone. Psalm 1 is indeed the front door to the book of Psalms, but it's French doors, right? It's double doors. And it's by opening this other half that we enter into the Psalms. It's by opening both of these doors that we get into this book. And so Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are closely connected. And for a long time in both Christian and Jewish history and tradition, they were connected. In fact, it was seen that Psalm 2 was just actually a continuation of Psalm 1. And if you consider it together, it's almost as if Psalm 1 considers God's relationship to the individual, and then Psalm 2 pans out to consider God's relationship to the whole world. Right? Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. That one man and, and God's relationship to him. Psalm 2 begins, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? That the Lord who is related to the individual is also the Lord of the whole earth. And if you look closely, there are some things between the two Psalms that establish a connection between them. For example, there are words that are repeated in Psalm 2 that you saw in Psalm 1. For instance, the word meditate. We saw in Psalm 1 verse 2, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his word he meditates day and night. Well, the Hebrew word in the original language for meditate shows up again in verse 1 of Psalm 2. It's translated here, as we'll see in a moment, plot, but it's the same exact word. Or, for example, Psalm 1 concluded in verse 6 with a warning that the way of the wicked will perish. Likewise, Psalm 2 ends in verse 11 with a warning that the rebellious will perish in the way. The wicked will the way of the wicked will perish, and they will perish in the way. And on the other hand, positively, Psalm 1 began by showing us the path to happiness. It started with the word blessed. Blessed is the man. And it went on to say, who delights in the law of the Lord. And Psalm 2 will end with that same idea. It will add to that idea and say, kiss the son lest he be angry with you. And blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And so this idea of blessed sort of brackets and bookends Psalm 1 and 2. It's the first thing you hear in Psalm 1. It's the last thing you hear in Psalm 2. Bracketing and bookending the two Psalms, it's almost as if it could be said to you, happy are those who delight in the Lord's word, Psalm 1, and who delight in the Lord's Son and take refuge in Him, Psalm 2. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. So here's what we want to do. This morning, we want to open the second door of these French doors. And by opening these double doors, we want to enter into the Psalms. So do that with me by opening to Psalm 2. This is page 448 in those black Bibles in front of you. You'll need to leave that open because we'll be walking through these verses. Page 448. And let's ask the Lord to open our hearts to him and his word as we do that. Pray with me for a moment. Father, your word tells us, open my eyes to see the wondrous things of your law. So as we open our Bibles, as we open to Psalm 2, we ask that you would open us to it. We remember the Lord Jesus who, after his resurrection, walked with two disciples on the road to Emmaus, that seven-mile road. And as he did, he opened the scriptures to them. Their eyes were opened and their hearts burned within them. 
And here we are, a church named after that very same story, and we ask that we'd have that experience today. That you, by your Holy Spirit, would open this word to us, and open us to this word. And in doing so, our hearts would burn within us, and we would see, our eyes would be opened to Jesus Christ, and we too would go out on mission for him. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll notice if you look just down at your Bibles that the psalm has four stanzas. You can see that. And in these four stanzas, these four movements, there are four voices that can be heard, four speeches that are made, four speakers in these four stanzas. You'll see in verses 1 to 3, the first stanza, that the kings of the earth speak. In the second stanza, verses 4 through 6, the king of heaven speaks. In the third stanza, 7 through 9, the king on Zion speaks. And in the fourth and final stanza, verses 10 through 11, the kings of the earth are spoken to. If I were to try to summarize the meanings of these sections, it's that in stanza one, you're going to see the rebellion of the world. In stanza two, you'll see the response of God. In stanza three, you'll see the reign of God's son. And in the fourth and final stanza, you'll see the response that is required. That's what we're going to see in these speeches, both made by kings and to kings. And by now, you've heard that word a bunch of times, king. You've heard that the kings of earth speak, the king of heaven speaks, the king on Zion speaks, the kings of earth are spoken to. This is fitting because this psalm, Psalm 2, was likely a coronation psalm, meaning this psalm was probably read when David and the sons of David were crowned king over Israel. You see, the background to Psalm 2 is that the New Testament, for example, in Acts 4, tells us that it was probably written by David. So this is a psalm written by David. David, who, by the way, is Israel's most famous and greatest king. The same David that God had made an incredible promise to. In fact, let me just read you this one section, because this is good background as you try to understand Psalm 2. God had come to David. David was just a shepherd boy. There was already a king named Saul. God got rid of Saul, made David king. And when David is sitting as king of Israel in a palace one day, he looks around and he sees that he's sitting in a palace. Meanwhile, God, Yahweh, Israel's God, is dwelling in a tent called the tabernacle. And he thinks to himself, how am I sitting in a house made of cedar and this palace and God is living in a tent? I will build for the Lord a house. And God shows up in a vision to the prophet and says, listen, David is not going to make my name great. My name is already great. I'm going to make David's name great. He's not going to build me a house, and there's a pun. I'm going to build him a house, not literally of wood, a household. And this is the promise that God gives to David. This is 2 Samuel. You can just hear it with me, verses 11 and following. The Lord declares to you, that the Lord himself, this is to David, will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, meaning you're dead and buried in the ground, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. Pay attention to that. You'll see that again. And he will be my son. 
Your house, skipping down to verse 16, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is the promise that God makes to David. God says to David, I am going to make sure that when you are dead and buried, your son will sit on the throne and you will have an eternal kingdom and a forever throne and a reign that will not stop. Your son after you will have that kingdom. Now, either that means that he'll have a son who will live forever or that he'll have a succession of sons and his dynasty will never end. But either way, God is promising to this son, you will have a kingdom that is forever. You will have a throne that is forever. That is the promise that God gives to David. Now listen, that promise from God that God would give to him a throne and a kingdom that would last forever, that would be an important promise to regularly recall especially when each successive son of David climbs up to the throne. When he is newly crowned king, it would be a good promise to remember and recall because he would look out at a world that was more than ready to take him off the throne. He would look out into a world that was more than ready to bump him off the throne and take away the kingdom. And in the midst of a world that is raging for his throne and his power, this son of David would need to be reminded that God has promised a line and a throne and a kingdom that would last forever. It may be well and good that God has a plan and an agenda for the Davidic line, for the sons of David, for this dynasty. But when you look about the world, the world throughout history has never been on board with God's plan or his agenda or his king. And in fact, that's the first stanza of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 begins in the first stanza with the rebellion of the world. Listen to verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The first stanza of Psalm 2 depicts something of like this global coalition, this united league of nations, this world war where every nation on the earth is assembled and locked arms together. And you imagine, in a world like ours, as fractured and splintered with all its interests, what on earth would it take for every nation of the planet to coalesce around one agenda? What on earth would it take for every power and every people and every nation and every government and every king and every ruler to join forces and be united? What kind of enemy would have to rise up that they would present a united global coalition in this world war? And verse 2 says, it's the Lord. And his anointed. That is the one thing that ties all the nations of the world. All the peoples of the planet is this inborn hostility towards God. That every nation, no matter where you find yourself, whether you're in the Americas or in the Middle East or in the Asian Pacific, every nation of the world, the entire human posture is hostility towards God. All peoples. Did you catch that? All nations, that is all ethnicities, all tribes, all tongues, all peoples are described in these verses as in this rage. Moreover, they're plotting, it says. The word plotting here is the same one we mentioned already as meditate in 1 verse 2. 
And so you can see the contrast. Whereas the blessed man is meditating on the law of the Lord, Psalm 1, that is, he's muttering to himself the things of God, it takes a very nasty twist here as the nations are muttering to themselves in rage, plotting against the Lord and his anointed. And this rage, this hostility, this war against God goes up all the way to the highest levels, this verse says. Meaning, did you notice the kings of the earth and the rulers set themselves together against the Lord and his anointed? And together, the, the plan that they come up with in their rage is let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. Do you see the picture? The picture is God is seen as a leader that needs to be impeached. A ruler that needs to be deposed. A dictator that needs to be overthrown. That the posture of the human heart is that humanity sees God's rule, God's control over our life and over the world. God's rule and reign is seen on earth as a tyranny that is to be revolted against and a slavery that is to be emancipated from. Let us burst these bonds and throw off these chains and these cords. And Psalm 2 is saying, From every heart to every empire, this is the posture of man. Just last week, I read an article about a man who down in Arkansas took his car and there was a statue of the Ten Commandments outside of a courthouse, newly put in outside of Arkansas, and he took his car and he ran right over the statue. And what made the article most interesting, what made the incident most interesting, is what this man shouted as he did that. He saw this statue newly erected, he got into his car, he stepped on the pedal, put it in full gas, and like William Wallace from Braveheart shouted, freedom, as he ran over the Ten Commandments, right? Now, whatever that man's intention was, whatever was going on in his heart or mind, Psalm 2 would say, that same spirit is in the littlest child, the little one, that believes to his core when you say don't put it in your mouth and he puts it in his mouth that freedom is found in throwing off whatever authority is over it from the littlest child to the greatest empire this spirit within us is that we will finally be free when we can throw off the constraints and rip apart God's rules and his rule and reign and we can sit on the throne this is the spirit in every one of us let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords that freedom and life and happiness is found if you can finally remove the shackles of God from your life if you can finally get rid of God you will be happy and you will be free now mind you the irony of ironies is that man was shortly arrested right after that right the irony of ironies is he shouts freedom and finds himself in bars Locked up behind bars. And you begin to think to yourself, is a fish, when it is finally free from the prison of water, and as it's flopping about on dry land, is that the picture of freedom? When a train is taken away from the confines of those tracks and put onto an open beach, is it finally free? As you see that fish flopping about, would you not say, this is a suicidal plot of yours? This is vanity. 
And Psalm 2 would say to us, human rebellion against God is vanity, it's vain, it's futile, it's suicidal. Which is why the psalmist opens by asking in verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Meaning, he's not asking a question that's begging for an answer. He's making a statement of astonishment. What do the nations imagine they're going to get? What do the peoples think they're going to gain by plotting against God? By throwing their fist up to the heavens? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And notice also that their plot isn't just against God. It's against what? Against the Lord and his anointed, the text says. Anointed literally meant that your oil was poured over you. It was usually done of a prophet or a priest or in Psalm 2 over a king. You were anointed king. The word anointed there in the Hebrew literally would have been the word Messiah. Translated into the Greek, this is the word Christ. So this global rage of the peoples is against the Lord and his Christ. The nation's rage, the people's plot, they want to throw off the rule and reign of God and of his Christ. Now, there's something important for you to know about Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is sort of like wearing bifocals, meaning it helps you see something real close, and by looking through it, you can see something real far. Right? Psalm 2, like bifocals, helps you see something right in front of your face, and by looking up, it can help you see something way far in the distance. Well, right in front of your face, Psalm 2 is saying, listen, the world and the nations were warring against Israel and against Yahweh and the king that Yahweh had established on the throne of Israel, namely David and his sons. That's up close. But when you look far into the distance... When Psalm 2 becomes bifocals that let you see far away, then you'll notice that the New Testament, the second half of your Bibles, will jump all over Psalm 2. In fact, Psalm 2 is quoted often throughout the New Testament because the New Testament wants you to hear, listen, yes, yes, this is about a son of David. No, but this is about the son of David. This is about a Messiah, a anointed one, but this is about the Messiah, the anointed one. This is about a Christ, but this is about the Christ. And if you had any doubt, Seven Mile Road, if you had any doubt about the hostility of the world towards God, then the New Testament would say you have to look no further than to see what the world did when God came into the world as flesh in Jesus the Christ. And when you see how the nations raged and the peoples plotted in vain against him, you'll see that Psalm 2, like bifocals, was pointing you to another son of David. And you'll see the rage and the hostility against him. Seven wrote, we were just in Mark a short time ago. Did we not, throughout the pages of Mark, hear rage against Jesus Christ? In fact, Mark 3 literally had the word plot. Mark 3, the religious leaders gathered together and they plotted together how they might destroy him. John 1 will say, the light of the world, that's Jesus Christ, came into the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not receive him because the world hated the light and loved the darkness. In fact, Acts will tell you. In Acts 4, the apostles are praying. And catch this. When they're praying, guess what they reach back into their Bibles and quote? Psalm 2. 
And they literally read the verses we've read together. They say in their prayer, why do the Gentiles, a.k.a. the nations, rage and the people's plot in vain? The leaders, the rulers of the earth and the kings set themselves together against. And then, just to show you that the New Testament, the apostles, saw Jesus as the fulfillment of Psalm 2, listen to how they interpret this. This is Acts 4, verses 27. You can just listen with me. They pray and they say, for truly in this city, that's Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, there's our word, who was the anointed one, Psalm 2, Jesus the servant anointed, both Herod, who was Herod? A king. And Pontius Pilate, who was Pontius Pilate? A ruler, along with the Gentiles, who are the Gentiles? The nations and the people's of Israel. So what's there? In their prayer, as they're praying and they recall Psalm 2, they say, Lord Jesus, we remember that you were crucified. You whom God had anointed, gathered together against, there's the same posture as in Psalm 2, the rulers take their posture against the Lord and his anointed. Gathered there was the king's Herod and the ruler's Pilate and the nations, the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel against the Lord and against his anointed one. This is the posture of the human heart. It was then, it is now, and so now the question would be, what then is God's response to this global coalition, to the resolve of the entire world to overthrow the rule and reign of God and his Christ? You imagine all the resources of men, all the might of man, like missiles pointed into the heavens. All the world is ready to declare war on God. So now what will God's response be? That's the second stanza. The response of God, here it begins, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Don't you love that? All the missiles of all the planets of all the peoples are enraged and pointed towards the heavens. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. And the Lord holds them in derision. What is God's response to the world's rebellion? Let me tell you what it's not. God is not in the heavens biting his fingernails. God is not in the heavens calling together his cabinet to receive advice. God is not getting intelligence briefings from the angels. God is not seeking allies so as to not be outnumbered. God is not being whisked away to some secure bunker. God is not getting ready together his defensive plans. He laughs. He is not pacing about the floor of heaven, walking back and forth. He is seated. He is seated on his throne in the heavens, as in as a king who is undeterred, who is unflinching, he sits on his throne and he laughs and he looks down below those thousands and thousands of miles below while men are scurrying like ants and they raise their ant tentacles to the Lord. They don't have tentacles, I get it. They raise their ant fist to the Lord and the Lord looks and he laughs. He breaks out in a big laughter 
about the rebellion of the world and their plot to overthrow the rule and reign of God and of his Christ. He holds them, the text says, in derision. That's literally, he mocks them, he scoffs at them, he scorns them. The plan to overthrow God and his rule and his reign is to God a big joke. A big cosmic joke. But you'll notice the turn in that laughter. He laughs, but the laugh turns. In my head, I pictured it, it's sort of like the ha ha ha. Right? Like that, like that deadly laugh for a second, and then you stare. Because here it says, listen, the rebellion against God is a joke, but it's not funny. It's a big joke, but it's not funny. Because he says in verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. To this scurrying world with all its missiles pointed up to the heavens, he says to that world, while they're conspiring, whispering, hushed tones plotting, he declares, as for me, I have set my king on my holy hill, on Zion is where my king is. Did you notice, by the way, the contrast? The rage and fury of man makes God laugh. But the fury and wrath of God makes man terrified. All our fists pointed to the heaven makes him laugh. But when he speaks, we shake in our boots. Man is terrified. Why do the nations, we would say with someone, why do the nations rage and plot in vain? For God says, as for me, I have set my king on my holy hill. Now listen, put on the bifocals. Because Psalm 2 would say, near. The king he's speaking about that he's set on his holy hill is the Davidic king, the next son of David. But far, far, this is the rule and reign of Jesus the Christ. And it is an unimpeachable reign. It is an undefeatable reign. It is a reign you can't usurp. You can't coup d'etat this Christ from his throne. And listen, Sevmarun, would not the history of the world bear witness to this? Would not the history of the world bear witness to the fact that God laughs, he has set his king on his throne, and nothing and no one can dethrone him? In the first three centuries of the church, The Roman Empire from Nero to the Emperor Diocletian was determined with great vigor and might and power to eliminate Christianity from the Republic of Rome. With great vigor, with great effort, with great might, the Caesars were determined, the emperors were determined to get rid of Christianity, to stamp it out. And so Christians were fed to lions in the Colosseums. Christians were burned as torches to light Nero's garden. Christians were sent in exile. They hid in caves. They gathered in the woods. Charles Spurgeon, the preacher, tells us that Diocletian, the emperor, he had a medal that was made. On the medal was an inscription. This is what it said. His medal was made for having, quote, extended the Roman Empire in the east and the west and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the republic to ruin. So a medal was made saying, here's a medal given to you for extinguishing the name of Christians from all of Rome. 
And I tell you, when that metal was made, the one who is seated in the heaven laughed. Because I ask you, where are the Caesars? And where are the emperors? And where is the Roman Empire? And while it has been stamped out and extinguished and gone from the face of the earth, God and his Christ remain. Because the one who is seated on the heavens laughs. He has set his king. And listen, down throughout the pages of history, it would tell you the same story. China had a movement by which all the missionaries were going to be thrown out. And communist China was going to get rid of religion from its land. We are nearly approaching the time when China has more Christians and is the most Christian nation on the planet. Because the one who is seated on the heaven laughs. He has set his Christ on his throne, and it is an unimpeachable, undefeatable, uninterruptible rill and reign. Listen, no wonder then, when the apostles were persecuted, when they had been beaten and thrown into jail, when they got out and they prayed, guess where they turned to give language for their prayer? But to Psalm 2. And they turned and they prayed the words of Psalm 2, and Acts 4 tells us, and they left from there proclaiming the gospel with even more boldness because our God is seated in the heavens and he laughs and supremely said Marod, what on earth nothing nothing bears witness to the undefeatable unconquerable unstoppable God and his Christ like the empty tomb what else but the resurrection of Jesus stamps God's victory onto the world except the empty tomb meaning you could take this Christ you could spit on him You could mock him, you could flog him, you could beat him, you could kill him. You could put him in the ground, but you cannot stop him. For if you kill him, he will come back. And if death could not conquer him, what can stop the unimpeachable reign of Jesus Christ? And so now, the third stanza, you're going to hear the reign of the Son. You're going to hear from the mouth of the anointed one himself. This is the third stanza, the reign of God's Son. It says this in verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The anointed one is speaking. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Catch that just one sentence for a second. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now remember, Psalm 2, bifocals. So near, nearsighted, we can see that this means that this is something that would have been read at the coronation. So you can imagine that this was a reminder of the promise that God gave to David and his sons. And it was a good reminder. You heard it before, right? 2 Samuel 7 verse 14. When your son becomes king, here's the promise. I will be his father and he will be my son. Meaning that God would look at any son of David as he's climbing up to his throne, as he's being crowned, as he's having his exaltation and ascension and coronation. Today I have begotten you. I am your father now, and you are my son. Here's what I learned. In the ancient world, son wasn't just a familial thing, meaning not just a genetic thing. It was also a functional thing, meaning in the ancient world, sons did what their dads did. Your dad was a fisherman, you were going to be a fisherman. Dad was a baker, you were going to be a baker. If dad was a mechanic, you were going to be a mechanic. If dad was a carpenter, you were going to be a carpenter, which is why Jesus is called the carpenter's son. So a son does what dad does. So now when the king gets crowned, God says to him, today you are my son. Why? What does God do? 
He sits on a throne and he rules and he reigns. And now you, my son, will sit on a throne and you will rule and reign. And so today I have begotten you and you are my son and I have become your father. That would have been fittingly read at every coronation. But listen, while this would have been read at Solomon's coronation, David's son, and Rehoboam's coronation, Solomon's son, and then after Mabijah, and then Jehoshaphat, and Asa, all the way to Jeconiah, and all the kings would have heard this read. Ultimately, as you look through Psalm 2 to the distance, you go, this is about another king, the anointed one, the king, Jesus Christ. Now, track with me for a second. Listen for a moment, and don't miss this. On the one hand, Jesus is eternally the Son of God. He's eternally the Son of God. He wasn't just declared to be the Son of God or made the Son of God. He's eternally the Son of God. Isn't that why we, just a few moments ago in the Nicene Creed, what do we confess? We believe in the Lord Jesus, right? Very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Right? He is begotten, not made. That is, Jesus was eternally begotten of God. He is eternally God's Son who has shared the very nature of God from all time. He had no beginning. There was never a moment where God, Jesus, was not God. While that's true then, if he is always God's Son, then you should ask, why do you get to passages like Hebrews 1 or Hebrews 5? or other places in the New Testament that quotes Psalm 2 and says that God says to Jesus, Today, I have begotten you. Today, you are my son. I have begotten you. And at that point, I don't know about you, but I would scratch my head and go, wait, what is this? Why would God say that to Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God? Why would God quote Psalm 2 about Jesus? In fact, there's a little panic in my own heart going, this is exactly what all the cults say. All the cults say he was just a man. He got promoted to deity. He was made by God. He's created by Yahweh. And he got ascended up. And so you begin to scratch your head and you panic for a moment. Except the New Testament tells us. Would you remember Psalm 2? Would you remember Psalm 2 to remember and understand why the New Testament quotes it that way? In fact, let me read you just one section from Acts 13. And it'll help us see what's going on here. Acts 13, Paul is preaching a sermon, and this is what he says. And though they found in him, that's Jesus Christ, no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, listen to 33, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul preaches, and when he preaches, he says, listen, by raising Jesus from the dead, God fulfilled Psalm 2. That the resurrection somehow is the key to the fulfillment of Psalm 2. That by raising Jesus from the dead, he has become the fulfillment of Psalm 2 so that God could say to Jesus, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, think Psalm 2. When do the sons of David, 
become the son of God? When do they get begotten? When do they get called? Today you are the son of David or the son of God. It's that moment when they are crowned, when they are ascended to their throne, when they are exalted and crowned king. But when does Jesus Christ get coronated? He has no earthly coronation, no ceremony. And yet Jesus becomes king of all kings through his death and his resurrection. And when does Jesus ascend to the throne? Except by his resurrection, he is raised up from the dead and raised to the heavens and seated at the right hand of God so that God could turn to his son and say, you are the Psalm 2 king. And today I have begotten you. And everything I had promised from David and Solomon and Rehoboam on is fulfilled now in my beloved son who is raised from the dead, is seated at the right hand of God in unimpeachable, uninterrupted rule and reign. I have set my king on Zion. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 2 in Jesus the Christ. And listen. The promise in 2 Samuel 7 is you're going to have a son that will reign forever. Now, either that means you'll have a boy that doesn't die or you've got to have, keep having a dynasty. Well, what happens when one son of David rises from the dead never to die again? It means no more coronations. Psalm 2 is fulfilled, which is why Paul can say in Acts 13, God promised something to our fathers. It's been fulfilled in the days of his children. By raising Jesus from the dead, he has fulfilled Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And because Jesus is the true Psalm 2 king, it's ultimately to Jesus that God says in verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God is saying to his Christ, his anointed one. He's saying to him, the nations plotted against the rule and reign of God and his Christ. And yet now the nations will become the inheritance of the Christ. The ends of the earth will become his possession. All authority is given to this son of David, this son of God. No wonder then, no wonder then when Jesus is ascending up into heaven to take his seat at the right hand of God, he looks to his disciples and he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of what? All nations. All nations. That means the Christian can have steel in his spine knowing that as we go to the ends of our city or as we go to the ends of our state or the ends of our country or to the ends of the earth, we go to be the messengers by which God claims for his son the promised inheritance of all the nations. We should go with this message. Jesus died and rose again to make sure that the nations were his inheritance. So we should go. We should go to the ends of the earth. We should go to the Yazidi people of Turkey. If you remember, we prayed for them just a moment ago. In our weekly email, we sent you an update on them to pray for them. We should go to them. You know why? 
These brothers and sisters, these people believe that there is an angel called the peacock angel. And this is the highest one to worship. And we should go to them and say to them, Hebrews 1 says, To which of the angels did God ever say, Today I have begotten you and you have become my son. And we should say to them, the scriptures say there is one who has been made higher than the angels. His name is Jesus Christ. We have a message now for the nations. And it's finally to that message that the psalm ends. This is the fourth and last stanza. This now is the message God has for the nations. And as those commissioned by God, this is our message to the nations. Verse 10 and following, this is the response that is required. We've seen the rebellion of the world, the response of God, the reign of God's Son, now the response that is required. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The psalm ends by saying, kings of the earth, be wise. Rulers, be warned. Listen, you nations. Listen, you peoples of the ends of the earth. Listen, brothers and sisters who hear my voice today. You have two options, Psalms 2 says. You have two options. Either you will serve the Lord with fear. Hear me. Psalm 2 would say to you, this is a war you can wage, but this is not one you can win. You can throw your fists up to the heavens. You can point all the missiles to the sky. You can plot against him. You can reason against him. You can outlaw him. You can mock him. You can spit him. You can kill him, but you cannot beat him because you could put him in the ground and he will still come back. You cannot be rid of Christ. No matter how much you try, you will never be rid of Christ. This world will never be rid of Christ. His rule and reign will never be gotten rid of. So you can either raise the white flag and surrender now or be forced into submission one day because you will not be rid of Christ. So serve the Lord. Rejoice. Rejoice because he is good. But tremble because he is great. He is God. Kiss the son, it says. Here's the son, the anointed one, the Messiah. Kiss the son. This is not an emotional kiss. This is not a romantic kiss. This is like a king handing out his hand so that you could kiss it in submission and pay homage. Like a servant would fall at the king's feet and kiss it in submission. And so today, the king is extending his hand to you. But listen. If you would but look, you would see that it's a nail-pierced hand. The hand that's being extended to you is a nail-pierced one. It is not a king out to destroy you. It's a king who has been destroyed for you. And he is putting out his hand that you might kiss the sun, that you might rejoice and tremble. Today is the day to serve the Lord. Or else, or else face his wrath, for it is quickly kindled. The psalmist warns, lest you go the way the Psalm 1 wicked man went, like chaff that perishes in the way, that cannot stand in judgment. And the end of the matter is this, blessed are all who take refuge in him. That is, here's the path to happiness. 
It's not found in being positioned against the Lord and his anointed. It's, being, it's found in being positioned, positioned in the Lord. Right? Verse 1 was, they set themselves against the Lord. The end of the verse, the end of the chapter is, blessed are those who take their refuge in him. You will be in one of two positions. You will either be against God or you will be in God. You will either be warring against him or you will find refuge in him. There is no life for the fish on dry land. There is no life, no freedom, no happiness that comes from throwing out God. You can't. Instead, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Let's pray together.